Some say that age is just a state of mind. Now, I don't know who in the world said that. They clearly weren't old. I think anybody older would say that uh, growing old is not for the faint of heart. But, but what is being old? There's a recent survey done by a polling group that uh, asked 2,000 people, and they came up with this, that old is 57 and above. That kind of hurt. But there are challenges to growing old, uh, but there are benefits too. And some of the benefits of growing old is wisdom. And that's where we find ourselves today in this passage where this preacher, we're kind of envisioning him as this older man who wants to give wisdom to those who are younger, to give wisdom for life. And the way he gives wisdom is by looking at his own death and speaking to the young about older age. In other words, throughout Ecclesiastes, we've seen that death is really a, a, a model that we're to look at. It's not to scare us, our own mortality, but it's to shape us. It's to change the way we live. And so that's what we're going to find today. How does death do that? How does death lead us to a life of wisdom? And, and there's two ideas that are, that are dominant in the text. One is to rejoice, that throughout this life, we're called to rejoice. You're going to see that in chapter 11, 7 to to 10 primarily, uh, but then remember. Remembering is going to be throughout the whole passage, and the relationship between rejoicing and remembering is going to be that we can rejoice by remembering. He's going to give us things to remember to help us rejoice. So let's look first at this call to rejoice. You know, because Ecclesiastes does get real bad press. It's kind of a pessimistic book. It's a dark book. It's a foreboding book. We don't fully understand it. And yet, if you've been listening through this series, you find that actually it's a very joy-filled book. That, that in chapter 11, verse 7, for the seventh time, and this is the final time, but for the seventh time, we're called to rejoice over and over in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 5, in chapter 7, in chapter 9, and here in chapter 11. He wants us to rejoice. Look with me at verse 7 and 8. He says, light is sweet and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Now, he gives a shout out to the young man to rejoice. It's a young woman as well. But I think it's more than just these 20s or 30s even. I think what he's saying is those who are young are all those people who are not walking in the characteristics of old age given in chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. So it's, it's a broader group. And what he's saying is love life, enjoy life. When you're young and your bodies are mobile, your, your worries are few, the days ahead are many. He's saying to enjoy life. What I want you to see is that it's actually not a suggestion he's making here. He's giving a command. He, he's calling us to rejoice. Does it surprise you that God would command for you to be happy? In other words, we think of commands as kind of coercive, kind of, I got to do this. But he's saying, you've got to be happy. And would it surprise you to know that you and I will be held accountable for not rejoicing? Because to not rejoice in, who, in all that God is and all that God has given to us, to not rejoice is a denial of his very goodness. It, it, it's kind of a, a, a cosmic ingratitude. I'm not going to thank him. I'm not going to rejoice in all the things he gives me. 
So, so to what degree do you find joy to be a part of your Christian life? Have you thought about the affections being central and joy being central to the Christian faith? Now, some of you may be more melancholic, maybe. Maybe you struggle with joy a little bit. You tend to see things on the dark side, or if there's a, a glass and it, it's half filled with water, you see it as half empty, not half full. And, and maybe for some of you, circumstances have been difficult in life. And so it's, it's tended to make you a little more reserved, a little more pessimistic. Maybe you've been hurt more. Uh, but the call remains the same, to rejoice in all that God has given to you to rejoice in your youth, to rejoice in your life, in all the days, all the years he gives you, he says rejoice in them all. Now, if you're optimistic, you just, by God's common grace, you just have more of a, you know, a, a sweet, you see things on the bright side. I want to remind you that optimism is not necessarily gratitude. Optimism is not necessarily rejoicing. You know, optimism can be just, hey, things turn up for you. But what he's talking about here is it's a gratitude both for the things that God has given to you throughout this life, but also that God is the one who gave them to you. Now, if you're a grumbler, if you just by nature seem to struggle with any sort of satisfaction in life, it's kind of a warning to you. Now, listen, if you're suffering, we do mourn. And if you experience loss, we do experience disappointment. Grumbling is not the same as mourning. Grumbling has more of a has more of a, a judgment to it, more of a stinginess. Like God, why are you being so stingy with me? You see it in the garden. You see it in the first couple. Here they were given every tree from which to eat. One they were not, and that was the one they wanted. And they actually questioned God's goodness for not allowing them to have of that tree as well. So the call is to rejoice. Now, so if you struggle or if you don't make it a practice, let's start. So, so the challenge to you today is start small. Just take two or three things maybe that you are thankful for and, and thank, you know, be uh, grateful for the gifts themselves, but don't stop there. Uh, go, if, if these gifts are like shafts of light, go up the shafts of light to the sun, go to the source of the gifts, go to the the giver of the gifts. Thank God for them. So don't just thank him for the family that you have. That's a good thing to thank him for. But then thank God that he would be so kind to give you the family that he did. Or maybe you want to thank God for the forgiveness that you have. Well, that's wonderful. Thank him for the forgiveness, but then consider the character of God as one as merciful that he would extend forgiveness to you through Christ. So, so don't stop at just the gifts that you have, but go to and love and be grateful for the giver of those gifts. And, and I would take, I would ask you to go a step further. Give expression to him, maybe around the table tonight, or maybe walking with, a, with one of your children or your spouse. Uh, just give expression. When we verbalize both to God and to others our gratitude, it actually increases the joy that we have in them. So allow the joy to increase as you give expression to it. Okay, so that's the call there in 7 and 8 to rejoice. But now he moves to the second part, which is how to continue a life of rejoicing. And that's by remembering. And this is where we're going to start mining through the text here. And the first thing that I would ask you to remember is that if we are to rejoice in this life, we do have to remember that it will be attended with many troubles. Look with me at verse 8. He says, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. 
But let him remember, there it is, that the days of darkness will be many. So he's saying, if God gives you many years, be diligent to rejoice in each one of those years. But recognize, remember, that even in those years, there will be days of darkness. Now, what are these days of darkness? Some think it means death. I tend to think it means more distresses and trials and tribulations because it's plural. There aren't many days of death that we have. We have one day of death. There are many days of darkness. I think what he's simply saying is that in this life under the sun, this this Ecclesiastes world that we're in, that you will have trouble. That cancer, car accidents, betrayals, miscarriages, oppression, injustice, they come to the believer and the unbeliever alike that we should expect there to be many days of darkness. But this doesn't prevent us from rejoicing in what God has given to us. Now, here's the key. The key to rejoicing in days of darkness is to look back at all the aspects of God's grace that he has given to you in your history, in your life. And when you look at those past acts of mercy, it sustains you in the present day of darkness. So Carol and I will often look back at our history and our life, and we'll see how God has delivered us from our self-centered worlds that we lived in. He delivered us through years overseas when, when it seems like we couldn't find two nickels to rub together. He has led us through times of great mourning and sadness over the loss of family members. And so we look back at those things and we say, look at how God evidenced kindness, mercy, power, and and grace to persevere. And then that same God is going to enable me to live in the present darkness right now. And, And this past act of God's grace reminds me of his future grace to me that will be mine when I need it going through those days of darkness. So let me warn you, as a Christian, we don't want to see this world kind of through the frame of a Norman Rockwell picture. I love the pictures. They're sweet. They're nostalgic but they're not true to all of life. We have difficulties. There will be many days of darkness. You have to know your own salvation history. You have to know how God has saved you, delivered you, redeemed you, forgiven you, incrementally changed you. You have to know how he's moved. Because as you look back at those acts of grace, they will sustain you. They will buoy you, both by developing the character of God in your mind But actual historical acts of mercy will preserve you in the present days of darkness that you may have to walk through, that you won't be shocked. A Christian should never say, why me? Why not me? We live in this world under the sun. We need to know our history. Okay, the second thing to remember, besides that we'll have troubles, we have to remember to live wisely. We have to remember to live wisely. Look with me in verse 9. He says, walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Now, you may read that your your antenna may go up and you may say, hold on. I didn't think I was supposed to follow my heart. Can't my heart get me into all kinds of trouble? It absolutely can. Numbers 15 gives us clear guidance. He says, do not follow the lust of your eyes and the lust of your heart. So why is he asking us? Well, it's not a blank check for some hedonistic pursuit of pleasure. I don't think it's a pass to just pursue any selfish ambition. I think this old preacher is sitting down with a young person who wants to be wise. And he says, yes, walk in the ways of your heart. Love God's world. Enjoy the gifts that he's given to you. 
but do it in a way that's right, beautiful, and good. In other words, we ought to pursue the things, the dreams that we have, the passions that we enjoy, pursue those things, but tether it to that day that he talks about. He says uh, that all these things God will bring into judgment. The idea of judgment, I don't want you to think of that as punishment. I want you to initially think of it. It might be analogous to taking a test. You know, it's a, a test. Teachers don't give tests to punish you. It may feel like it if you're not prepared, but they don't give you tests to punish you. They're trying to discern what have you gained from the material. And so if you have a math test and you actually study multiple days beforehand and you know all the material, you're not scared of it because you know the material. You take the test and you get a high mark. What he's saying here is just live and pursue the passions of your heart, recognizing that you will stand before God for all these things. And it's not a bad thing if you're doing what's right and good and beautiful, and you're repenting for those things that you fail in. You know, because in Romans 2.16, it says that all the secrets of men and women will be revealed. That's the day. He's not trying to dampen our joy here. He's trying to give divine direction to it uh, so that we'll find true joy. You know, Augustine said it this way, and you've heard me quote it before. This comes from his homilies in, the, in his sermons on 1 John. He says, love God and do what you want. If you love God, it's going to tether you to God. And so the choices and the passions that you, that you pursue, they'll be God-honoring. They'll be God-honoring. God wants us to be happy. He does. Uh, Carol and I are reading through, or actually we're listening to Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It's, it's kind of a, it's a fun story about this uh, kind of a senior demon who is giving instruction to his nephew, a junior demon, on how the art of temptation of the Christian. And um, so he writes from the position of the enemy is God. That's the enemy. And so here's what Wormwood, the, the senior demon, says about God. He says this. He says, he's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses, they're only a facade. They're like foam on the seashore, but out in the sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without minding in the least, without his minding in the least, sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. God has given us his world to enjoy. We're to enjoy it for his glory. Does this challenge your view of God? If you have this idea of God that he's a killjoy, he's a red light, stop, don't go there, you can't do that, you don't have a good understanding of the God of the Bible. He wants us to be happy. He just wants us to find true joy, not the substitutes that we, that we find ourselves in too often that lead to too many problems. Uh, so, so alter your view of God. He wants you to be happy. But I would say this. There is a warning here, particularly to the young, I think. Those who don't think about life beyond, those who don't think about that day. You know, there's an essay written by William Hazlitt. He was an English writer. And the, um, the article is titled, On the Feeling of Immortality and Youth. And here's what he writes. No young man believes he shall ever die. There is a feeling of eternity in youth which makes us amends for everything. 
To be young is to be one of the immortals. Death, old age are words without meaning, a dream, a fiction with which we have nothing to do. We bear a charmed life, which laughs to scorn all such idle fancies. As in setting out on a delightful journey, we strain and, and ever move forward. We see no end to prospect after prospect, new objects presenting themselves as we advance. And so in the outset of life, we see no end to our desires, nor to the opportunities of gratifying them. He wrote that in 1827. In other words, it's not new to us now. This idea of when you're young, you don't think about that day of death or that day of judgment. Don't fall prey to that. It's fundamental to us. We don't want to look at these things. And this is why preaching is so important to remind you. So to have joy, we want to remember to live wisely, to pursue happiness in the way that God's ordained. A third way to continue to rejoice in this life is to cast off the anxieties that you have. Look with me at verse 10. In verse 10, he says this. He says, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. What he's saying here is anxieties just sap the strength out of our joy. They smother our happiness and our contentment. In other words, he's saying that the things, the burdens and anxieties of life, that we're not to give them place in our lives. We're to refuse them entrance into our soul. Now, you think about some of the anxieties that you faced in life. You think back in high school, and you think about, you know, you were just anxious over having the right hair, having the right friends, having the right clothes. And, and, and they really, they really cause you great concern. Where are they now? Where are those concerns now? Do you even think about them? Do you even remember them? Or maybe when you're in college, you were just so anxious over your grades or having the right internship. Now you're into your second job. Where are those concerns now? They were anxieties that just literally throttled you, and now you can't even think about them. Or maybe you're in career and your first business meeting, you come out bold and absolutely wrong in what you say. You say something just cosmically stupid in front of your boss and you think my whole career is torpedoed. But now you're two, three jobs and bosses beyond that. You don't even think about it. In other words, these anxieties, we have to make the decision to cast them away. Now, Jesus gives us instruction on this. He says that we're not to worry about what we're going to eat or drink or wear in Matthew 6. We're not to worry about those things. And the reason is, is because we have a heavenly father who knows we need these things. In other words, it's the sovereignty of God, our creator, who allows us the ability to cast our cares to him. Now, listen, if you like control and you want to turn all the dials and move all the levers, you're going to be an anxious person. Anxiety comes as we're trying to control and manipulate things to go exactly in the direction we want to go. But if there's a stepping back from life, if there's a looking to God and recognizing that he's sovereign, not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will, that he cares for the birds of the air and he, he clothes the flowers of the field. If there's a rest in his sovereign goodness, because he does want us to be happy and rejoice, then the anxieties begin to fade away. We still have to cast them. That's what Peter says in the fifth chapter. He says, cast your cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. He will receive them. So, so there's a decision we have to make. So if you're there right now and you say, but you don't know the worries I have. Here's what I want you to do. Uh, just take three of them. 
what are they? Write them down. You know, I'm worried about health. I'm worried about children. I'm worried about finances. I'm worried about... And then next to each care or concern or anxiety, write down a promise of God. What has God promised to do in light of that? So you may say, yeah, this COVID-19 thing, this has got me rattled and I'm really worried about contracting it. I was like, okay, there is a legitimate threat. There's no doubt about that. But then write down a promise next to it. For example, in Psalm 139, that every day appointed to us was known to him before one came to be. He has appointed days. Or you saw in chapter three, there's a time that he is appointed to live and to die. God's sovereign. It's not a license to be reckless with our lives. But what it is, is it's a reminder that he is sovereign over the days. That promise, if I believe it by faith, will move my fear of COVID-19 out of the way. It may come back two hours later. I go back to the promise. It may come back 10 times and you keep going back to the promises. Now, if you say, well, I don't know all the promises that can offset all of my fears. Well, then call up another member of the church. Call the elders. Call one of the elders. Call one of the staff. Call me. We'll help you with promises so that you can rejoice in this life. Remembering, I'm going to cast off this vexation and anxiety. So those are three things to remember. We're to remember that troubles are going to attend this life. We have to remember to live wisely. And we have to remember to cast aside these cares, these kind of suffocating thoughts that come to us. But there's one last one, and this is a big one. We have to remember our creator. For us to have joy in this life now, we have to remember our creator. And you see this in 12.1 and really through the balance of the, of the verses that we'll be looking at, 12.1 to 8. He says, remember your creator. Now, what he does, and you'll notice this if you read back through it, he says three times, remember your creator before the day of troubles. Remember your creator before the sun is darkened and remember your creator before the cord is snapped. What he's saying is, remember your creator before you die. Don't wait until you get into this old age and then try to make up for lost time. Don't wait is what he's saying. Now, it's interesting. You could ask me, you say, why am I supposed to remember my creator? Why doesn't it say remember your God or you remember your king? Well, I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to remind us he is the creator. He wants us to be oriented to him as we're not self-sufficient. We're not independent. I mean, as a creator, he's given us, it says in, in chapter eight, he's given us days to live. In chapter three, he's given us a time to be born, a time to die. Chapter three, he's set eternity in our hearts. Chapter two, he's given us wisdom and knowledge and toil. In chapter five, he's given us wealth and possessions and work. God is the creator that we're to remember. He's the one that runs the whole show. He's the sovereign one, not us. He's the one that's given us life. We have to appear to him. This is what we got to know before getting into old age. This is what we need to know when we're young. And when he says, remember your creator, he's not saying remember like, you know, think about it. You know, it's like I remember how to ride a bike. Riding a bike is one of those things. Once you get it, you never lose it kind of thing. He's not talking about muscle memory. He's not talking about intellectual recall. He, remember means that once I am reminded of a truth, I now get in a position that is appropriate to him being a creator and me being a creation. He says, remember your creator before the days of trouble come. There are days of trouble that are coming. He says there that, that, you know, if you've ever talked to a person who says, 
I don't want to live anymore. He says, where life is no longer a pleasure. And that's what he speaks about in verses two through five, about what is this time? What are the characteristics of this age that is a time when troubles come? Look at it with me. In verse two, he says, to remember your creator before the sun is darkened. In fact, he says it this way. He says, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Now remember back in chapter 11, verse seven, he said, light is sweet. He said, it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. But he said, days are coming. Where those illuminaries in the sky that God has given to us, they will be darkened. There'll be growing perplexity in life. There'll be fading memories. There'll be weakened wills. And it will be seen in our own bodies. Look with me at verse three. He says, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, the keepers of the house are my arms and my hands. They, they take care of my house. So he's envisioning our bodies like this once great house that's beginning to slowly decay. And he says, the, the keepers of the house tremble. Our, our, our arms lessen in strength. They begin to shake. Or he says, the strong men are bent. The strong men are those legs that you've stood on your entire life. Eventually they begin to bend. They begin to lose power or the grinders cease because they are few. The grinders are literally molars are our teeth. You know, back in a pre-dentistry day, they didn't have dentures. You lose your teeth and it's difficult to eat. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. Your eyes. Think about it. You turn 40, you need readers. You need large print Bibles. You can't see things as clearly. He's telling us what's going to happen in this time, remember your creator before this. Look with me at four. He says, then the doors on the street are shut. In other words, you can't hear as well. When the sound of the grinding is low. In other words, when, when eating is now difficult, digestive issues. He says, when one rises at the sound of a bird, you know, when you get older, sleep is quite erratic. You, you wake up at the sound of anything. You wake up early. You can't get back to sleep. You have trouble going to sleep. He says, and the daughters of song are brought low. In other words, the things that you used to take great joy in, there's just a lessening, a waning of delight in the things that you once really enjoyed. It goes on in five. He says, they're afraid also of what is high. I mean, you look at a young kid, he'll scale a ladder, he'll climb a tree, doesn't even think about it. When you're older, ladders are very dangerous things. You're worried about falling. He says that the almond tree blossoms, your, your hair goes white. The grasshopper drags himself along a grasshopper. They hop, they're agile, they're moving all over the place. You can't catch them. When you're young, you're so agile. When you get older, you're not so agile. You can't move as fast. You, you tend to shuffle. He says, and desire fails. That's appetite for food probably, but also intimacy that these things wane with age. And then he says, because man is going to his eternal home. He's reminding us, remember your creator before these things happen. You know, before these days of trouble come, which I've just explained, because these days of trouble that I've just explained lead to verse six, where he says, when the cord is snapped, the golden bowl is broken, the pitcher is shattered, and, and the, the wheel is broken. In other words, these are all expressions of death that death will come and there'll be a separation. You see it in verse seven, where the, <clears throat> the dust returns to the earth and the spirit goes to where, to the one who gave it. 
In other words, here's what death does. <clears throat> Your life is taken from you. It was not yours. It was loaned to you. And it goes back to the one who actually owns it. Death, death is a time of, of great separation. It's, in a way, it's the last enemy of life under the sun. Death is almost like a decreation. It's like an unmaking of man. You know, God formed man from the dust of the ground. He took dust of the ground, he formed man, and it says in Genesis 2, 7 that he breathed life into the man and he became a living being. But when the man and the woman rebelled against God, they questioned his goodness. They disbelieved him. Uh, sin entered and death came with it. And so did the return to dust. In fact, in Genesis 3.19, we read these words that by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So death is the empirical evidence that we have been separated from our creator. We have forgotten our creator. We've gone our own way. So what do we do? Does death have the final word? Thankfully, no. God will always have the final word. And the beginning of his word against this, we even find in Genesis chapter 3. You know, this promise that the woman will have a seed or a son and the seed will crush the head of the serpent. Now, it's kind of a cryptic promise. It's hard to understand in isolation. But later on, the scriptures begin to explain it. Paul, in particular, in Galatians, says that Jesus is the seed. And, and Jesus is the one who crushes the head of the serpent by becoming a curse. He says this in chapter 3. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham to be a people of God might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So what Christ has come to do is he's come to live this life fully pleasing to the Father in every way, happy and pleasing to God. He bears our sins. He bears the curse of God associated with those sins. He bears the judgment of God so that he might give freedom, that we might receive the blessing of Abraham, the promised spirit through faith. And what the spirit does is the spirit gives new life. Jesus came that we might be born again. In other words, Jesus has come to create a new humanity. He's come to bring about a new creation. This is a promise of Paul. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So the decreation of sin and death gives birth now to a new creation. The old has passed away. The old man cursed the decaying, now we're being made new. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he says, we're being changed from glory to glory. We're being made into the image of Christ himself. We're a new humanity entering a new kingdom. And this is all through faith in Christ and what he's done. We read these encouraging words in Hebrews. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We're not slaves anymore. 
We're not subject to fear of death. Why? Because death cannot separate us from the love of God because Christ has borne our death. This is incredible. This is incredible news. I, I mean, the fact that through faith in Christ alone, we have been remade. We've been born again, like the dry bones in Ezekiel 37. They've come to life. That's what's happened with us through the spirit, through faith. That's our hope. If you're listening, though, and you're not a Christian, what do you answer for death? What do you say to death? Because if death is the end of all things, it renders everything you do as ultimately meaningless. The career you have will end in retirement. The children, they'll grow up and leave. The beauty that you have, it will fade. The popularity that you once had will wane. The wealth that you had will either be spent or be lost or be given away. That if death is the end of all things, it renders our lives absolutely meaningless. And that's why Christ has come into our world. He's come in under the sun to live with us so that he might lead us out of it to live life above the sun with God. And that's through you repenting of your sins, seeking God for forgiveness and reconciliation through Christ alone, by faith alone. Now, if you're a Christian, what do you do with this? Well, let me give you a few things to remember. First, remember the brevity of life. Remember how brief life is. Think of this old preacher coming along and saying, how now are you going to live? Don't wait. Don't delay. Don't fall to the lie that says, well, I'll get more serious as I get older. It, you won't do it. it. It's a lie. You know, Malcolm Muggeridge was a British essayist, a journalist. <clears throat> he was once a, uh, a Marxist, by his own admission, an absolute far left liberal politically. And, and yet when he came to faith in Christ, his whole life was turned upside down. And he wrote a biography, wrote an autobiography, and he said, these, he titled it this, he says, uh, Chronicles of Wasted Time. Don't be guilty of wasting your time. You know, the days are evil, Paul says in Ephesians. Make the most of every opportunity. Make changes now. Uh, begin by writing your own funeral. Remind yourself of how brief life is. Write down what songs you once sung. Write down the scriptures that are meaningful for you. Write down to the grace of God that you want testified at your funeral. Write it down. It'll help bring tomorrow much closer. Uh, and then secondly, remember that death is actually an instructor for us. Death is to teach us. Our coming death is to be an instructor. A few weeks back, I said there was an author that wrote, death is like a surgeon. It wounds to heal. Death is meant to help us. It's meant to give us wisdom. Too many of us, we see the death in others. We see our own death. We don't learn anything by it. Listen, Moses in Psalm 90 said, teach me to number my days. Then may gain a heart of wisdom. We have to know the brevity of life and our own death that we might live wisely. I read about James Russell Miller. He was a late 19th century Presbyterian minister, and he wrote these essays to young people to help them live their lives well. And here's what he wrote in one of his essays. He says, we are in all our earlier years building the house in which we are to live when we grow old. We may make it a prison or we may make it a palace. 
We may make it very beautiful and we may make it very gloomy. The important practical question is, how can we so live that our old age, that in our old age, when it comes, shall be beautiful or happy? Ask yourself, if your life is like a building, what are you building? And what are the things that you're doing right now? for the glory of God that will adorn it with joy and happiness. So at the end of your life, when your head is upon your pillow and you're waiting for that day to come, that you'll be happy. Or what are you doing now that's going to make it a gloomy day, a gloomy building, uh, when uh, lost opportunities, uh, living with regret upon regret. It matters now what you do. You're building a house now. What is your house? So, so remember the brevity of life. Remember the instruction of death. And then I would remember this. The last thing is to remember that death is not the end. You notice in verse seven, when it says the dust goes to the ground, the spirit goes to God, goes to the one who gave it. He's really talking about what happens at death, that when the Christian dies, his body's buried and his physical body does decay into dust. But his spirit goes with God. Now, we call this, theologians call this the intermediate state. The intermediate state is that time before the final and great resurrection, the coming of Christ, where all the dead are raised and the, the dead, the, the dust of the dead saint is joined with the spirit now renewed of that saint. And then they stand before God in the image of Christ himself. That great day on that final resurrection, when Christ returns, and brings the bodies together with the spirits of the saints. But right now, there's an intermediate state. That is, the saints that have perished are now with God. Their lives, their spirits, their souls, bodies are still on the ground. That won't be the final end. The final end is they'll be joined back together. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, perishable will put on imperishable. The mortal will put on immortality. The weak will put on strong. The physical will put on spiritual. And then we'll be with God on this earth, a new earth and a new heaven, with God reigning just as it was originally intended, but better. So that's the hope we have. So, so having our own death shape our lives is not a morbid idea at all. In fact, it's a practical way of living mindful of the brevity that we have. Let me pray for us that we may take the wisdom that is contained in this and we might begin building glorious palaces for God that, that will serve us well in our final days. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word and the grace that you've given to us. You have posted warning signs and you've done that out of love and care. You want us to rejoice even in the midst of this broken world. And we rejoice over you, not just the gifts you've given to us, but all that they speak about your glory and your goodness. Father, by the power of your spirit, would you enable those who have given little thought to their death would you enable them to give thought to it, to think about it, to consider it, to look at the brevity of their lives, to see the nature of the fallenness of this creation and that they might turn to you by faith and believe. And would you give grace to those of us who do believe that we would long for this day, that we would gain wisdom by considering our death, that we would begin to live in a way that was bold. We wouldn't be a bunch of undead people but we would be alive, living for your glory, serving, sacrificing. For we know that even the present sufferings of this day 
cannot outweigh the eternal glory that will be ours when we see you face to face. Change us through this word, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.